What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Guy met the Buddha, liked what he heard, thought about it for a while, say 500 years while he returned to the Mediterranean, became an Etruscan, seeped into the Roman Empire. He didn't like what they became, a giant killing machine. He went to the Near East thinking, why not pass the Buddha's teachings on in a modern form? So he tried. One dissident against Rome. Rome won. The rest is history. Well, sort of, a lot of fairy tales mixed in. He's saying he was Christ. Oh no, that's the medal they pinned on Jesus to fulfill prophecy. The crucifixion. He blocked the pain as he had learned to do in Tibet and India. He also learned to slow his body processes down to the point where they were undetectable. They thought he was dead. So his followers pulled him from the cross, placed him in a cave. His body normalized as he had trained it to. He attempted to go away undetected, but some devotees were standing watch. He tried to explain. They were ecstatic. Thus I was resurrected, and I ascended to Central Europe to get away as far as possible. You don't mean a word of this, John. My God, why are you doing this? Let me see your wrists. I don't scar. Besides, they tied me, but nails and blood make better religious art. All the speculations about Jesus. He was black, he was Asian, he was a blue-eyed Aryan with a golden beard and hair straight out of an Al Sassoon's. He was a benevolent alien. He never existed at all. Now he's a caveman. The Christ figure goes all the way back to Krishna. Hercules, of course. Hercules? Born of a virgin, Alcmene. A god for a father, Zeus. The only begotten. The savior, the Greek, Soter. The good shepherd. Prince of Peace, bringing gentle persuasion and divine wisdom. He died, joined his father on Olympus, a thousand years before Gethsemane. How can you compare pagan mythology to the true word? Pretty damn closely, I'd say. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. You just heard a clip from the movie The Man from Earth where a college professor admits he is an immortal being walking the earth for the last 14,000 years. Interesting that he claims to be a specific type of Cro-Magnon known as a Magdalenian caveman, which is an actual scientific term. One of his identities involves being a student of Buddha and taking his teachings to the West to become, yes, Jesus Christ. That's kind of the theme in this eternal now. Was Jesus Buddha, or did Jesus bring Eastern thought to the Greco-Roman world 
Or maybe Christianity appropriated Buddhism, or maybe Gnosticism is just a continuation of Buddhism, later corrupted by orthodoxy. It's been said that Buddha and Jesus would laugh or cry if they'd known what was done in their name. Get ready for some galvanizing but nuanced arguments on all this cool woo-woo. In the end, it will be like what Albert Schweitzer said in his book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. The Jesus you search for is the Jesus you need. Just as relevant is when Francis of Assisi said, What you're looking for is what is looking. Lois, don't get alarmed, but I think I might be Jesus. You are Christ, as the Gnostics said. But the resurrection needs to happen while you're in your meat sack. You should kill the Buddha on the road, of course. But you also need to crucify your lower self in the elevator to allow your Christ consciousness to rise. You came to the right place for this. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. Because this... Is Aeon by Gnostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow your mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining, crazy diamond with that inner Christ that can change the course of history. Especially as Yaldi Bali attempts to finally annihilate human consciousness with his mechanical madness here in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. That the secrets of the universe were something a bit more complex than just gods of frizzy-haired homicidal lunatic. I made you in my own image. A little thanks would be nice. Thank you. For what? Kids with cancer. The Kardashians. So excited to host at the virtual Alexandria, Daniel Hopkins. He'll discuss his book, Jesus Godama Sources. Daniel is a walking library of Alexandria, and he does a stellar task of arguing for the Buddhist influences on Christianity, Gnosticism, and Judaism. Taken alone, the philosophical teachings of Jesus are Buddhism with a Hebrew accent. We've covered this topic before on Aeon Bite, but it's long overdue to revisit and it's key to grok the connection between Gnosticism and Eastern mysticism for a more holistic understanding of cosmic liberation. I mean, all I can do is just pour some tea for two and speak my point of view, but it's not sane. It's not sane. I'm Pickle Rick! But for a cogent argument, let me revisit Stefan Holler's book, 
Gnosticism, New Light on an Ancient Tradition. Here is the quote. The supreme objective of Buddhism is identical to the ultimate aim of Gnosticism, that is, liberation, meaning freedom from embodied existence and thereby from all future suffering. It's the wanting. Huh? The Buddhist will tell you, all life is pain. Pain comes from always wanting things. The Bodhisattva ideal and other modifying teachings in only Gnosticism and Buddhism, specifically Mahayana Buddhism, is based on this list from the late renowned Buddhist scholar Edward Conzi. Number one, salvation is achieved through Gnosis, Jhana, insight into the dependent origination of manifest existence is what liberates. Number two, ignorance is the true root of evil. In Gnosticism, it is called agnosis, and in Buddhism, avidya. Number three, both Gnostic and Buddhist knowledge are arrived at not by ordinary means, but as the result of interior revelation. Number four, there are levels of spiritual attainment ranging from the condition of a foolish materialist, hyletic, to that of an illumined saint, pneumatic. Number five, in both Gnosticism and Buddhism, the feminine principle of wisdom, Sophia and Prashvya, respectively, plays an important role. Kanzi quotes the Hevraja Tantra. Prashvya is called mother because she gives birth to the world. There are other deities in Buddhism that may be cognate to Sophia, such as Tara and Kuan Yin. Number six, both Gnosticism and Buddhism show a preference for myth over fact. Christ as well as Buddha are presented as archetypal beings rather than merely historical figures. So you're saying my father and his kingdom? Yes, it's based on the fusion of a Sumerian god named Yah and a Mesopotamian god named Wei. And we're in a toy train. Yes, it's enough to really make you question all of existence, isn't it? So what do you think you're going to do about it? I'm going to do what I've always done. I want to get the fuck out of here. Number seven, a tendency to antinomianism, disregard for rules and commandments, is inherent in both systems. While at the lower rungs of the spiritual ladder, rules of behavior are considered important and even crucial, in exalted spiritual state, the importance of such rules becomes relative. Number eight, both systems are disdainful of easy popularity and aim their teachings to a spiritual elite. Hidden meanings and mysterious teachings are prevalent in both systems. I think I'm people really are talking metaphors ought to shampoo my crotch. Number nine. Both Gnosticism and Buddhism are metaphysically monistic, which means that they aspire to transcend the multiplicity of manifest things and achieve a condition of ultimate oneness. To say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. 
As a bonus for subscribers, I'll include after the interview a clip where I provide the parallels of Gnosticism and esoteric Hinduism and Buddhism. But trust me, Daniel does a far superior job in our chat. And you should invite this cat the next time you're killing Buddha on the road or crucifying your lower self in the elevator. Even your Buddha and your Christ had quite a different vision, but nobody's paid much attention to them, not even the Buddhists or the Christian. I truly appreciate all of your support, your company, and your feedback. You are beautiful and you are amazing, and never let anyone else convince you otherwise. It's a demiurgic lie. I can't thank you enough, and I couldn't ask for better company as the world collapses with the last and desperate assault of the Archons. Yet you have shown you will not succumb to the mind-killer that is fear, that you can surf the chaos of returning dream time, and that eternity is still yours for the taking. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. Life sucks, sure, but being rules. You are pure awareness, pure Christ consciousness and Buddha essence. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them and I will be after and everything else is pictures picked up along the way. Fleeting little dreamlets. You are also the persevering heart and poetic warrior manifestation of Inanna, Sekhmet and Anath. But keep in mind to not sweat the small stuff, which is 99% of the simulation in the Black Iron Prison. Don't let them divide you. The first noble truth is life is suffering. But the Buddha preached joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Both Gnosticism and Buddhism arose as a reaction to consciousness-killing orthodoxies of the time. Both were anarchic yet compassionate, reforming yet liberating, and both Buddhism and Gnosticism ultimately rejected the conventional, narrative reality imposed by the empire that never ended. Don't sweat the small stuff. Think of this story. Alexander the Great found the philosopher Diogenes looking attentively at a pile of human bones. Diogenes explained, I am searching for the bones of your father, but cannot distinguish them from those of a slave. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. It's all a temporal illusion. And yes, like the college professor in the movie, We've been wandering this illusion for a long time, more than 14,000 years, but we're now ready to write our own gospel and live our own myth, become that savior we were meant to be. What you're looking for is what is looking. It's not sane, it's not sane. Why is everything? The whole world is a product of cognition. It can be freely remade. The same goes for you and everyone else. 
Soon a new world will come. One where mankind isn't held captive. The world will shine brightly as long as you hold hope in your hearts. Remember, there's no such thing as the real world. What each person sees and feels, those are what shape reality. This is what gives the world infinite potential. Even if you feel that only darkness lies ahead, as long as you hold hands together, see it through as one, the world will never end. The world exists within all of you. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Daniel Hopkins to discuss his book, Jesus's Godama Sources. For some reason, I want to say Jesus's goddamn sources, but I keep, but it's the urge I have. But Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Miguel. And I did, I did pick that word like that on purpose to convey <laughs> that I'm not a classic, classically trained scholar, more of a soldier. So I did want a little bit of a harshness to it. And so the pun was there. Intended. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. No, you should be a scholar because uh, this book is like the Akashic Records of finding a connection or the parallels with Buddhism and so many of the Western traditions. It is exhaustive. It is just uh, an endless, as I was telling you, an endless feast of uh, evidence. And I learned so much more. It's a topic that I followed in the past, um, but uh, this was just an incredible read. I highly uh, advise the audiences that if you are interested in these parallels, you definitely get Daniel's book and we will make the case tonight. And with us too, we've got the goddamn Moondog. How are you doing, Vance? Yeah, I'm goddamn fine tonight <laughs> and uh, looking forward to this because I've always wondered if there was a connection between Buddhism and Christianity. I've uh, I always suspected that there was, especially, you know, the Rosicrucians say that Jesus traveled to India and we know that people from India and those parts had a capability and did travel over to Alexandria and all that. So it's a great subject and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, indeed. So, Daniel, how did you become interested in this topic? You say you're not a scholar. Was this a passion of yours or tell the audience about this? Sure. But just as a child looking for somebody who could give me the answers, I really uh, held Jesus and the Buddha particularly stood out in my mind and asking myself if there was any truth to the uh, claims of these characters, if there could be any other type of relationship they had on a spiritual level or whatever. And from there, it just took off to never-ending search and finding so many neat and interesting connections between them. A lot of connections, that's for sure. So tell the audience more or less, uh, what is the thesis of your book, The Elevator Pitch? Sure, sure. Well, like you said, the title is Jesus's Good Dhamma Sources. Um, the subtitle is the inherently scholarly prejudices regarding the relationship between Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Buddhism and a truer history of the post-axial age, Egyptian, Gresham, and Persian empires. A pretty lofty subtitle there, but um, it really conveys what I'm trying to do here is take the, the scholars who covered this topic over 100 years ago and seeing where they left off and also recognizing, uh, like someone of the future might recognize in our speech, uh, prejudicial tendencies and biases and trying to pick up from there. Professor Zacharias P. Thundy is another author who's written on the subject, uh, Buddha and Christ's Nativity Stories from the Indian Tradition. And he brings up an interesting fact that right before World War I, 
and World War II, the topic of a relationship between Buddhism and Christianity was slowly picking up again. And then he says it really hasn't arisen ever since. And uh, since Vance brought it up, I wanted to ask you, we just get out of the way, there was this sort of titillating theory of Jesus going to India. I forget the name. It was a Russian scholar who started it. And, you know, sure, sure. Nicholas Notovich. There you go. And there's part of Jesus's life that's not in the canonicals. Uh, So people wondered, what do you think of this theory of Jesus going to India? Oh, I I love the theory. One of the main proponents, his name is Holger Kirsten. I had a chance to meet him with another author on the subject, Dr. Christian Lindner, at his house in Denmark. And all these people are so fascinating, wonderful people. But his take was that Jesus traveled to India. Uh, Right away, when somebody says that to me, I have to remind them at uh, Jesus's time in the Levant or in Palestine, there was broad Buddhist missionaries there. And so one would suppose that to get the deeper Buddhism, he wouldn't even have to travel out of the Levant. But as far as what do I consider their claims? Of course, I think they're interesting. And if, if, if you get into my theory about this guy named Terabinthus, you'll see that he quite possibly could be this figure who traveled to India. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you want to bring it up, and, and but before that, do you think there was a historical Buddha, or what's your stance on this one? Sure. Well, the, interestingly enough, Dr. Christian Lintner, a fascinating guy, very influential on me. He yeah. is one of the only scholars today that will challenge the historicity of the Buddha. Um, may I, of course, my take is that his biography is so massive. Literally, in the Theravada tradition, you could argue that. Uh, he's 80 years of life couldn't have encapsulated all the recordings <laughs> yeah. for teachers because they're massive. And so in a certain sense, if we're to believe a bunch of redactors or editors worked with one man, created the Buddha figure, that to me would be just as outstanding or, or just as miraculous uh, or even some ways more. So, uh, but the questions of the King Melinda uh, put to the Buddhist monk, he's asked the same question. And I urge the listeners to listen to their response because they are very clever, these Buddhist monks, and he gives a pretty clever <laughs> response regarding the historicity of the Buddha. Yeah, what's his response? Well, uh, is it's it, pretty is long. It a long one? Oh, okay. I thought it might be one of those pithy, like... <laughs> no, but he does... <laughs> I can't Cohen's. sum it up in his... I can't think sure. of the pithy line that he sums it up in, but you're right. <laughs> and regarding Jesus, I used to think that the, the historical evidence was extremely lacking. And then I went to a, a weird place where you you argue that there is probably no Jesus to that there's probably several. And so that whole idea there is pretty interesting, um, how you could come from not being any Jesus to being a, a bunch of people that meet the mold. Wow, yeah, that is true. I mean, we've got Apollonius of Tyana, Simon Magus. There's oh, a whole course. bunch, the Galilean, the Egyptian. So, yeah, good point on that one. So, yeah, you've... Uh, I love the research you've done, and I love your, yeah, everything you've done. And uh, Vance, uh, I asked about uh, Jesus in India. Satisfied? Any follow-up questions on this? Oh, well, (laughs) Well, we have so much to cover, but uh, that's good for now, I think. Thank you. Good deal. Good deal. So, um, Daniel, you say in your book that scholars resist the idea of connections with Christianity and Buddhism. What is their reasoning and where do you see they are at fault? Sure, just, I guess, you know, just a sense of false pride in your country, nation, the the age-old pride in egoism. Max Mueller, a fine scholar that wrote on this subject, 
and has an interesting go back between between her and Blavatsky. Max Mueller himself um, says, um, I'm sorry, what was the original question, Miguel? Yeah, well, the, the resistance was scholars. You say it's pride. Oh, right. Well, he, Max Mueller... Max Miller is one of these persons that examined the Buddhist Christian parallels in detail. And he said they stand out because they're multi-tiered. And but he uses a phrase he says a couple of times, he says, although it's our natural inclination, quote unquote, to believe that the Christian um, stories came first, he points out that the Buddhist ones are older. And this speech that he's using is a, a recognition of the time that our scholars, modern day scholars, haven't accounted for. And, um, you know, so I think it's just the the belief that another system, another foreigner couldn't be uh, on par with your system is the way I explain it. But um, I don't have any definitive thoughts on why they did this. It just appears that they mishandled the material uh, greatly. And, and as far as Max Mueller himself asking several times if anyone saw any historical connections between the two faiths, he would like if they pointed them out. This seems extremely interesting because Max Mueller himself covered a lot of the East and West um, interaction, such as with the questions of King Melinda put uh, by the uh, Greek King Melinda to the Buddhist monk. And he also covered uh, the Alexandria interaction between the East. And he also covered uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus. He did a, a pretty good biography on Ptolemy. And this is the man that's very interesting regarding the uh, Buddhist parallels to Christianity because. The Buddhist king Ashoka has his name in India inscribed on a rock edict. And um, he also said to commission the Septuagint. And so if Mr. Max Mueller is asking for a historical connection, who could ask for what better of a historical connection than the person who commissioned the Greek Old <laughs> yeah. Testament, whose name is inscribed in India? And so for him to ask these questions, where are the historical channels where they met? It seemed a bit naive from such an outstanding scholar such as Mueller. And my only way of explaining it is that we all in our time have our own prejudices and biases that are hard to see past. That's my guess. No, that's well said. And yeah, we can talk chicken, egg, all we want about who influenced who. But I guess it's important to say that these religions never were in a vacuum, right? As you mentioned, you had uh, King Asaka, the great king who was spreading Buddhism all over the place, got to Alexandria. You had the, the Silk Road. You obviously had the Persian Empire, which was this giant bridge with universities and roads where all worlds were exchanging. So what I'm saying is that all the different big religions were always in communication. Am I, am I missing other forms or avenues? No, no I think that's, I think the, well, the a distinction might be made here is Buddhism and Christianity have been specifically pointed out as missionary, quote unquote, religions, right. meaning they would often send, you know, missionaries out. And that is, seems to be in some sense, a unique characteristic of these two, but in a general sense, I, I, I agree with you so much that I kind of think uh, Freud's um, idea of archetypes, and the, their dependency on symbols has a little, even though I believe in his theory completely, the symbol of the, the symbols found around the ancient world could easily be explained by even the pre-Buddhist um, um, religious institutions that penetrated the world. Yeah, that is true. And there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, yeah, we right, as humans, true. we have the same symbols, desires. There are those that want to reach higher worlds. So of course, they're going to go in and choose a, a contemplative ver version of the orthodoxies of their area. So that's a very good point. But 
Um, yeah, there's so many ways of doing it. And your book talks about the three main stratum of Western Buddhist propagandists. Would you like to share that with the audience? Sure, definitely. But if I could say real quick to remind sure. the audience that the Buddhists, they choose to represent their faith, the Pipal tree. Sometimes the civic one that the Buddha had enlightenment under is called the Bodhi tree. Right. But the Pipal tree here, I think it's good if the listeners keep in mind, it spreads. It's a tree that has birds drop its seeds on other trees, particularly the Banyan tree, which is the Brahmin tree. But it, that's how it overtakes and grows other trees. And if you see this as an analogy for how they treat other systems, they overtake systems by sometimes putting the, the local hero's face on a Buddhist doctrine, sometimes vice versa. But however they can, it seems like they weasel, for lack of a better word, weasel their way into other <laughs> faiths, just like the pipple tree. Oh, very interesting. And so to bring off with the, the first stratum, uh, Miguel, under uh, King Cyrus, um, I think another glaring omission by a lot of scholars is reading that King Cyrus, he he dis claims descent from this figure called Haxamanis. That's H-A-X-A-M-A-N-I-S. And this seems to be a perfect uh, Pahlavi rendering of the Buddha's title, Shakyamunis. And... Um, and so right here, I think there's another point of connection where we look at uh, Cyrus being called the Messiah by Isaiah and um, his connection to the Buddhism, which is, there's been a lot of theories about how Buddhism interacted with this Persian empire. But this explains a lot. And the archaeologist Flinders Petri uh, in Egypt under the reign of Cambyses, which is the son of Cyrus, unearthed in the Memphis Patah temple, that's P-T-A-H, um, an Indian figure uh, who he calls a Sramana or a monk or ascetic. And he notices how this monk has the robe draped over the left shoulder, which is a characteristic mark of the Buddhist. So it's very interesting that at this temple under the reign of Cambyses in Egypt, and everybody knows he made a pretty big stir in Egypt, um, that we have this Buddhist figure here, presumably if the, you know he's Buddhist if the right shoulder left undraped and he's sitting in lotus style. And so this whole stratum of Persian uh, influence to the West and Buddhism sent out missionaries is sometimes better explained through that connection to um, Memphis, uh, Egypt. And one of the first Sanskritists of the English world was named Sir William Jones. And he had a couple very interesting theories regarding um, connection of Egypt and India. And one of them was that Memphis, this place we're talking about, was inhabited by the worshipers of Siva. And another wonderful scholar who's been neglected, his name is Sir William Jones. And he has a lot to say on the subject also, not particularly about Buddhism, Christianity, but the eastern western uh, influence on each other mm, fascinating stuff indeed and what do you think original buddha buddhism might have been like i mean i've heard that uh it was uh, more dualistic uh obviously like the middle path is like a later edition i mean what do you think original buddhism looked like the, well, Dr. Christian Lintner, who just passed away, often uh, cites a Pali verse, which is considered the older Buddhist tradition on the middle path. And my feelings, particularly about the middle path, is that it's something that's been there early with Buddhism. And as far as Buddhism being dualistic, uh, sometimes it's hard to express exactly their stance because uh, essentially they choose a positive, a negative, and a neutral 
and they ask you to stand away from all those choices. Um, but, you know, the early church fathers, um, they speak of a man named Terebinthus in Palestine, uh, in Jerusalem with the apostles, and they say he brought the doctrine of quote unquote two principles, which is essentially taken to be Persian dualism, which was very popular after the Buddhist time. But I again see this as a reference to the Buddhist system of there's good and bad, and like Nietzsche says, you know, above good and bad. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Freedom from the wheel, right? Freedom. Sure, sure. Yeah, and Buddha was, a, as you write in your book, Buddha was a reformer, and so is Jesus. Uh, Buddha was uh, allegedly trying to reform the, the case system and the rigid uh, religiosity of the area, and Jesus, of course, was trying to reform Judaism as well. At least that's the story you get, but have you, uh, this is something you deal with your in your book, but... Um, I also read it recently in uh, a book by Jason Reza Georgiani called uh, Iranian Leviathan. And he talks about a Persian noble named Mugatta. And uh, he, he puts evidence that, uh, you know, he had an uprising against uh, Darius the Great. And uh, he probably might have survived because Darius, one thing Darius did is whenever he crushed uh, an uh, somebody trying to take over, he makes sure that there was public hangings and uh, the bodies were shown. And this was one big exception. And this Gomata had a sort of, uh, again, um, he was trying to reform uh, stern uh, Zoroastrianism. And uh, Darius might have uh, thrown him out of the, the empire. And uh, he might have gone and practiced his sort of very uh, Mazdakite Gnostic religion in northern India. What do you think of this theory or what do you think of Gomata, the Persian Gomata being actually the true Buddha, original Buddha, sorry. Sure, I, I love him. I've got a chance to hear him being interviewed. I didn't get a chance to read the book. Um, and I, I love his theories. I think he's a bright scholar. The name Gomada itself is a name, interestingly enough, that is related to Cambyses because the Cambyses people, or the name Cambyses um, is a rendering of the Cambodia people, which are, are known at the Buddhist time too. So again, this east-west divide that we often hear about is usually an artificial line where our scholars just haven't read this name as that name, essentially. So um, this person, Gomada, um, the name for the Cambodians was also Gomada. And they, they have a fascinating history, and they're also called the Ambatha people. And it's suspected that, uh, that Blavatsky herself did a translation of the Ambatha Sutta uh, of the Buddhists. And there, there has explanations of dark skin, dark skin degradation in India. And it's interesting that these people, according to the Buddhist, at one time were mixed people with a dark-skinned people, and they give the name of their mythical king, of course. And in my book, I try to show how the names of the Greek version of this king, Ojiges, um, is the same as the Buddhist king, Okaka. I wasn't the first to make this identification, but I, you know, I um, expand on it somewhat. And so the question this this guy Gomada, well he or, or Gomeda, however you pronounce his name, the so-called impersonator um, that Darius took care of, um, it, he is affiliated with the Cambodias, and he had uh, one of his main policies was 
um, rescinding the tax um, throughout the Persian Empire, which made him very popular and is a characteristic Buddhist move too. My thoughts are that we're just not reading the name and the connection of Cambodia, again, is very well known to the Buddhists and it's so far spread through India, the name of Cambodia is supposed to be the same name as this. And like I said, they have been pointed out by other scholars too as having um, African features and their, their story is very interesting because the Buddhists tell a story about their ancestor and they say that that when he was born with dark skin his mother said uh, he said to his mother wash this dirt off of me and the buddha goes on to explain at that time in india there was um, a discrimination against dark-skinned people and so of course when you look at the aryans and the vedic, uh, the vedic literature you do see corroborating stories so much so that when marco polo made it to sri lanka he noticed that all the devils were white and all the gods were black. And I think this is an echo of that same type of um, racial persecution throughout India. Mm. But uh, back to Gomada, um, do I see him as a second Buddha? Um, you know, I don't because I think we're overlooking that Cyrus before him claimed uh, descent from this character named Haximanus, which I believe to be a perfect rendering of the Sanskrit uh, Shakyamunas. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You know, that makes sense. And yeah, because uh, more or less, Cyrus is around right after the Buddha, but was Buddha already and Buddhism already an impactful religion where the Persians would have noticed by then? Or I mean, because Christianity Very took centuries to really take hold of uh, the West. Was Buddhism faster or it took a while? Well, um, well, you notice that one of the major authors on India, Aryan, um, who was an ambassador for the Seleucid Empire, who stayed at the court of Chandragupta, he writes on India and he does not mention the Buddha specifically by name. He does mention monks that live in the uh, forest secluded. And a couple of characteristic features are that they never go court the king. The kings always court them. And so a lot of people, some scholars think anyway, he, they're referring to the Buddhists, but not under that name. But Arian himself does mention this figure, uh, Sepra Botus, that's C-E-P-R-O-B-O-T-U-S, which sounds like a perfect rendering of the Buddha's grandfather's name was Super Buddha. And he mentions a mythical king of India named Buddha. So um, I think you're right. The Buddhists at first didn't make a, a huge splash. They were more cryptic in their spread. And if we take the pipple tree as an example, right. we should look for them uh, spreading like the pipple tree. Uh, planting seeds in other faiths and I think that's essentially what we see and in the West we can also trace them by figures like Pythagoras um, I think that you know in my book I argue that Pythagoras is known on historical record as this eye doctor that Amasis the Pharaoh of Egypt was asked to send Cambyses or his father Cyrus and so Pythagoras was known as an eye doctor and it, he was sent to Persia and most other writers say that Pythagoras went to India and Persia. And so um, the massive influence of Buddhism also was seen in their folklore throughout the whole world. There's um, different variants that have been found in the Native Americans, such as the moon rabbit fable and just a massive amount of um, folk tales that have been found by previous scholars 
in Africa and parts of Russia. So almost all over the ancient world, you'll see these folktales, which is another um, sign that their missionaryism was kind of subtle. Fascinating. Yeah, we'll definitely get into some more of those symbolism, but maybe we can get to the main event. Well, I would say the second main event, because after Christianity, I want to focus on Gnosticism. But uh, why don't we get into uh, the parallels of Christianity and Buddhism? And again, you bring a lot. Uh, as you write, Christianity was Buddhist from the beginning, especially with Alexandrian Gnosticism. But for or quote unquote traditional Gnosticism, what's the evidence? Uh, you want to start with uh, the Gospel of Luke, you write, leans on the Buddhist Lotus Sutra? Sure, sure. And I think this is one way we can help date the Gospel of Luke itself. Um, for Now, if the listeners are just taking these parallels by themselves, they're not going to appreciate the full extent of them. So separating them from, you know, archetypal, uh, typical parallels is necessarily, but necessary. But for instance, in the, uh, the prodigal son story in the Gospel of Luke, we're led to believe that the father knows when the son's coming back because it explicitly says the father went out to meet the son on his return home from his wayward journey. The Buddhist version, again, explains that the father had spies spying on the, the son. So there's little telltale signs in the text that reveals its source. And such as these, I think, help us identify the Lotus Sutra as one of the main inspirations. Uh, one of the criticisms of this theory is that the Lotus Sutra cult, and particularly the Mahayana form of Buddhism, doesn't appear till later. And that is true in a textual sense, but from the beginning of Buddhism, these groups called the Mahasamgikas, uh, mainly of Vishali, and may, mainly these tribal people called the Lachavis, they essentially held all the views that the Mahayanas held, that the Buddha was eternal, they essentially worshipped him like a god, and this was 500 BC. So, yeah, that's my um, take on the Gospel of Luke's connection to the Lotus Sutra. So we, And uh, Dr. Lindner, who's written on this and has a, uh, his own theories, um, he sees a lot of the influence of the Lotus Sutra cult also on early Christianity. In the Lotus Sutra, a main feature is that the hero doesn't fake his death, or he doesn't really die. He appears to die because if he stayed around forever, um, he would cause those with shallow roots to um, always turn and to never be saved is their explanation. And again, this seems like an excellent, uh, excellent explanation to the, the story of Jesus's death, where one sense we're to believe that he dies, and another sense we're to believe that his whole ministry, he sees his second coming uh, like he sees the back of his hand. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Some there's some other notable points I'm not recalling to mind from the Lotus Sutra um, as far as its uniqueness in relation to Christianity. For instance, the earliest um, version was said to be in 22 chapters, and one of these guys named Terebinthus that the church fathers place in Jerusalem with the apostles is said to have one of his books in 22 chapters. Interestingly enough, ah. yeah, that is very interesting. And this guy's name is. Terebinthus and very and we can trace his connection back to Cyrus and Alexander the Great has a part to play. It's interesting to retell his story. This man named Terebinthus, who argued could also be the uh, the prototype for the Jesus figure. Yeah, interesting. And uh, what about the idea of uh, the virgin birth? We find that with the Buddha too, right? 
Sure, sure. And it's it's often objected that the word virgin is never really applied to the Buddha's mother, Maya. And it might be just a, a, a difficulty in translating the Sanskrit terms, but that does appear to be truth. But um, as far as the virgin birth, the parallels are pretty um, pretty deep because the Buddha was said to be transparent in his mother's womb or his mother's belly was supposed to be transparent. And of course, similar things were said about Jesus in Mary's womb. Um, being born from the right side wasn't necessarily said of Jesus, but um, in Virgil's fourth eclogue, he, he mentions his hero of the future is born like that, Caesarean section. And just like the Buddha spends 10 months in the womb, so does Virgil's hero, which some have equated to Jesus. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, yeah, the name Maya, was that a common name? Because that seems like too easy illusion. I mean, wow. like Mary was everybody in there. Mary was called Mary in the time of Jesus, but Maya seems too obvious. Well, this this gets down to the, the historicity of the Buddhism almost because a lot of it seems too unbelievable uh, because <laughs> yeah. Maya her, herself as the mother of this illusion is a perfectly Indian way of expressing the madness that we're living in, the illusion. And so her name means illusion, somewhat roughly translated in English. And um, and so we're led to believe that this was just fitting name. And um, I don't know what to make of it, honestly. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, what does it say? Is, is she a historical figure? I, I like to think that there's historical figures now behind Jesus and Buddha, where at first I was more skeptical. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, uh, too. And uh, um, what about uh, the symbols? I think I like one that jumped out at me was uh, the eight-spoke wheel of Buddhism. And that's found in Christianity, right? Sure. The earliest church uncovered in, in my earlier book called Father and Son, East is West, I do cover the earliest church that they found um, had an altar room that was octagonal. And not only did the Buddhists like the eight spoke wheel, you know, as a symbol, you know, in boss reliefs, but they also formed their altars and their church rooms in octagonal rooms too. And so um, it's an interesting fact that the so-called widow's might coin that Jesus references in his widow's might parable is said to be a coin minted under Alexander Janus, which was a Hellenized Jewish king right. sometime before Jesus. And several people have made the claim that he he crucified a bunch of people and one of them survived off the cross. And this was another type of reference to the, or at least added to the Jesus uh, myth that we've come to know. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember, yeah, there's that horrible story of Alexander Janus where he crucifies some a whole bunch of Pharisees and has their families watch him from the down there. So those were rough times, no matter what kingdom or place you, you were. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. And what about something, let's say, the obvious one that might come to the audience is uh, you make a great case how Luke was influenced by some form of Buddhism. But the Gospel of John is one that people usually consider the most, uh, well, obviously the Gnostics were the first ones to write an exposition. They were the first ones who probably uh, promoted it. But in this, Jesus seems, uh, he seems more mystical, more transcendent. Uh, do you see that in the Gospel of John, the Jesus of the Gospel of John? 
Of course I do. And I might be prejudices, prejudice, uh, prejudice from all the scholars who take John to be a later author, but I, it does uh-huh. seem to make sense to me. Um, um, you know, there is separate works on the Buddhist influence on the gospel of John that was done some years ago too. And it, it does seem to be a unique, unique take on it. And it does seem to stand separate from the other gospels. Um, oh, for sure. And what, I love what you said. You you think it's not a later edition, that it might be earlier than what most scholars have contended? The Gospel of John? Yes. Yeah, I'm not too sure about how to date all these things based on the conventional, because I'm one who takes who thinks that everything has to be thrown at the wall and kind of reshuffled again for Agreed. us maybe to get. And so I'm trying to throw stuff at the wall myself a little bit. But um, And so no, I don't have any definitive opinions on that. I'm interested myself to know. Yeah, exactly. Anything that could be later, that could be earlier until we have, uh, as Robert Price says, until we have a time machine, we're all speculating at the end of the day. But that's that's fun. And that's how we learn about even ourselves and our past and everything else. So um, and um, what I like, too, is you make a great case uh, and some of the audience might be surprised about uh, the apocalypse of John. And you talk about uh the you kind of relate the dragon and some of the villains in revelation with uh the dragons in buddhism sure the seven-headed dragon of revelation and the naga uh, well this is this is just a fascinating topic that sheds more light on it because when we talk about this figure called the naga I think we have to talk about the character named Dionysus and also in Genesis, the, you know, the blazing serpent was called Hanush and most uh, philologists take this to be a rendering of the the Sanskrit Naga to be similar words or the same words. And so, um, you know, understanding their connection seems to shed a whole new light on the, what Buddhism had to deal with when their missionaries were sent out. They used the old roads uh, that the Dionysian cults used, and they borrowed a lot of their, you know, means for spreading um, information because Dionysus, when he was in Egypt, at least I argued, he's this pharaoh called Shishank, and that um, he's characteristically known for what scholars might call the penis pillars he left. When he conquered a people, he would leave these monuments. And in my book, I argue that the similar monuments were left by Ashoka and Darius. Um, that they were following in this tradition because Shishank also referred to himself as the beloved of gods. Darius refers to himself as beloved of of Ahura Mazda. And Oshoko says he's beloved of the divas or the gods. And so I think I got carried away and I missed your original question, Miguel. Yeah, again, the the dragons or villains in the apocalypse of John relating then to some of the villains in the East, like Mara. Right, right. Mara, another interesting uh, figure and how he hasn't been considered as a prototype for the Christian Satan is interesting because a lot of people follow him to a um, to Zoroastrianism and um, they stop any further there. Um, it seems to me like that Mara himself, and if you witness the parallel in the Buddhist legend, Mara tempts um, the Buddha similarly to how uh, Satan tempts Jesus. And so he's another figure I, I argued too. We, there's this east-west wall here where we go to Persia and we stop, don't go any farther. As a matter of fact, Thomas Paine himself in the Age of Reason, when he's discuss, discussing the language of Sanskrit, 
he says that he we need more information about the East, and he recognizes that as a problem when he's tracing um, parts of the myth to Persia. He had to stop. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you do like to bring up uh, Thomas Paine quite a bit. Uh, you write, uh, uh, you say how um, Paine thought that Plato's myth of Ur was uh, influenced by Zoroastrianism, and Jesus has a lot of parallels to Plato, Socrates, and uh, yet, and then you write Thomas Paine states his belief that the no that the New Testament derived from the Persians. So he's he's really going for the Persians. <laughs> right, right, but he does admit there, and he re references Sir William Jones again as the the you know top Sanskritist of the West, and says basically we need to know more. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, well, at least yeah, Thomas Paine was brilliant. I love uh, very groundbreaking on a lot of his uh, religious ideas and so forth. And uh, Vince, do you have a question, or what do you think? Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff here, but one thing's burning in my mind. Uh, one of the first things that made me suspect that there was a relationship between, uh, you know, Jesus and Buddha was the Pure Land Buddhism, the Amitabha Buddhism. What do you think of that, Daniel? Because it seems that Amitabha Buddhism really resembles a lot of even modern day Christian beliefs where if you believe in Jesus name, you can be saved. And if you believe in the Amitabha and all you have to do is believe in his name. And I guess that's kind of a, a theme in the uh, Lotus Sutra too, you know, that everybody can be quote unquote saved. Right. Um, well, what do you think of that? Sure, sure. Sure. Great observations. The Pure Land Buddhism, um, I might be guilty of neglecting to consider them a source as much as other forms because essentially they appear late on the record and their textual tradition isn't as easy to trace as some of these other traditions. But as usual, I think early Buddhism is a hodgepodge where we, we don't see a lot of the oral traditions that have died out. We're left with textual traditions, which gives us a skewed view. And I do think um, an, author, an author about 100 years ago named Arthur Lilly, he writes on Buddhism and Christianity, and he does a good job of bringing up parallels between the Amitabha cult and um, early uh, Christianity also. And I haven't explored him to the fullest, but I think there is something there. Yeah, and... Uh you know, there's so many other parallels that I'm sure you can cover in the book. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, reincarnation is a big uh, tie-in between the early Christian uh, uh, beliefs in reincarnation, uh, especially Gnostics, right? Sure. And we talk about Pythagoras, too. He believed in the transmigration of the souls. And a lot of scholars of 100 years ago thought that he uh, exhibited some Buddhist tendencies I think another glaring omission when it comes to Pythagoras is looking at the meaning of his name. This guy that I just referenced, Arthur Lilly, he, a hundred years ago, decided that the name should be read as Buddha Guru, which is very interesting because um, you guys are probably well familiar, obviously, with Acharya, uh, you know, the, the fine writer that passed away oh, yeah, several years ago, of course, yeah. a big fan of her. Uh, Acharya, meaning somewhat roughly doctor in English, it was a popular term with the Brahmins too. And so they used to call their, you know, their missionaries to the extent that they had missionaries, they would call them Brahmacharyas. And so this author brings up, it was only natural for the Buddhists to borrow the Brahmin terminology, which they did so many times and call their missionaries, the earliest stratum to call them Buddhacharyas. And that's our rendering Pythagoras. 
Now, it's very interesting because the superlative form of charyas is charasti. And in, in the language of the Cambodges that we referenced, is, it's called karasti. And it seems to be the exact word Christ. And peeling away exactly the first attestation of this word, we're told comes from the Greek play, um, you know, Prometheus bound. And the first verb, you know, to use this, you know, Christos or Christos is said to, now that's interesting because the author of the birds and Prometheus bound, he was well known to have Persian influence. And some of the terminology here, even before his time in Greece is slowly changing. And so we're told that the name Prometheus could mean forethought in Greek, but the scholars before this thought that it was a Sanskrit uh, reference to a quality of Agni, um, and it was Pranamantha. And the, the problem in seeing the prana, uh, Pramantha as being the root to the word Prometheus is that N that just appears. And so if we look at Greece in 500 BC, we also notice the word for pain changes from Pentheus to, to the end drops and it becomes Bethios. So a lot of times these language ties that I'm mentioning are hard to convey on audio, but on a chalkboard, they become a lot easier to recognize. And so um, again, with this topic, you can get run, run away and just keep running off. I forgot your original question. <laughs> what was it, Vance? Oh, um, reincarnation, see, uh, reincarnation. Yeah, that which, yeah, the Gospel of John does talk about reincarnation, and obviously, early Christians uh, embraced it. Obviously, the Gnostics fully embraced it. Um, yeah, like Elijah I and think John I saw, the Baptist, right? Jesus, I, I said think, that. I, if I do, I'm not mistaken, there's uh, some writers who equate the the jo Johannine tradition with the Mandaeans, and right. Um, are you familiar with the John the Baptist theory that they have? Um, but the interesting thing with them is that they do call their hero, if I'm not mistaken, Anush, N-U-S-H, which again, in this, the, the question of Buddhism and Christianity, this name Enoch and versions of it are repeatedly coming up, this serpent figure. And so correctly understanding that helps understand the relationship of Buddhism and Christianity. For instance, David's ancestor is supposed to be a certain character named Nahush. And the Buddha himself in one of the Buddhist chronicles is given a pedigree from this character named Devanaga. Essentially, I take him to be the Dionysus of India. But in, in the David's lineage and also the Buddha have the same ancestor, supposedly, or one with a similar name. And so back to, uh, to, to, um, to reincarnation, um, geez, you know, I don't have any personal thoughts on all this stuff because it's so mind blowing to me, but I like to, you know, you know, see what other people think. And there's a lot of figures, you know, who take the Jesus figure to be, you know, reoccurring, uh, you know, incarnation until his final incarnation. Um, and that we all follow a similar path. I think that sounds interesting, at least who knows? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> But it is, yeah, it's fun to speculate. Uh, well, why don't we get into uh, Gnosticism itself? I, I think we can start with a very softball for you, Daniel, because I'm going to bring uh, Basilides. Now, Basilides, many scholars have noted that his teachings were very Buddhist. He was in Alexandria at the time when it was a hotbed of syncretism. And Basilides obviously believed in reincarnation. He believed in a form of karma that you come back depending on your uh, 
on you know the weight of your soul and your deeds and past lives is a mystic quality of seeing the universe and uh a whole bunch of others and i think you talk about very insightful too uh you quote the church father epiphanius who says that kala ka is a name taken from a phrase in isaiah 28 10. if so basilides believed jesus was sent to trick christians just as brahmins say of buddha and uh, then you quote the lotus sutra where buddha also tricks the wicked and he goes i have not come for the righteous rather than the wicked so that parallels both basilides and christianity it does geez and that's some heavy thought um the brahmins certain brahmins of the lotus sutra time did argue that of course the buddha just came to trick the atheists and to steer them away from god um it's very interesting basilides if i'm not mistaken maybe he's tied to this gnostic gospel called the gospel of truth or maybe it's valentinus no, that's um, valentinus yeah okay mistaken and so yeah I, we um, only have a few quotes from basilides and most of it is church father uh uh yeah writing stuff down i mean there is one where you write to daniel you say that Basilides' word for the great emptiness is Buthos, B-U-T-H-O-S. And uh, then you write that Ma- the Mahayana Buddhism held that Buddha was the great emptiness. And uh, you say that, he, yeah, I mean, this is true. Uh, Basilides is the first time we hear of the name, the Gnostic entity called Abrasex or Abraxas. And uh, you say that the Abraxax might be a fusion of Abraham and Saka, which is another name for the Buddha. So uh, you bring out, yeah, with the Basilides, you bring a lot of evidence that even beyond what scholars, most scholars already knew about him. I'm a little uncertain still about the Abraxas character. That was just an educated guess, but I do find it interesting. The fool in some of these Nagamadi texts is named Sakla, S-A-K-L-A, oh, yeah, yeah. I think is the pop. And so in the Buddhist text, the Sakra is the, the Zeus-like figure who also plays the fool. And um, the, the parallels to the Gnostic texts have been neglected so much that when the relationship between Buddhism and Christianity first started, started to get pretty heated up over 100 years ago, of course, the Nag Hammadi texts weren't discussed as much. But when they were discussed, they weren't re-evaluated uh, for their possible ties to Buddhism. And when other scholars, modern scholars, and myself looked at them, we saw just as many allusions to Buddhism in the Gnostic, so-called Gnostic texts. And one of the striking ones is in the Gospel of Mary, if I'm not mistaken, at the birth of Mary, at her birth, uh, she takes seven steps. And, you know, that seems to be one of these characteristic Buddhist motifs. Um, the Buddha at birth takes seven steps in each direction, northwest, southeast. Uh, and in the, what is it, the Gospel of Mary too. Um, and I might be conflating two Gospels of Mary here, the infancy. So a lot of times I'm not so sure about if I don't have my material in front of me. Oh, no worries. There's so many of them. <laughs> we just, I know. I got Mari, there's like 55. So there's a lot. I'm glad there is, but it's it's work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, scholarship is just getting started, uh, mining these gospels for insights and so forth. But yeah, I mean, obviously the 
the Buddhism and Gnosticism, the idea of the illusionary world, the false self, uh, the contemplation of higher mysteries, all that, uh, they go, yeah, there's so many parallels and connections. They're definitely almost could be related to. Well, so much so, and that, that the Buddhists in India are labeled with the so-called atheists as Nastika, N-A-S-T-I-K-A. Oh, really? And wow. of course, language scholars never see a tie between us and Gnosticism, um, but I think this is another reference because the Sanskrit uh, scholars say, well, the word Nasti means no soul or no being. Uh, and this follows uh, a problem in interpreting these texts just as we're told Moses was called Moses because he was drawn out of the water, you'll see instances in the Buddhist text where they're trying to re-etymologize people's names, and somebody reading it should be at least skeptical. Why are they trying to define the name here? And so another instance where the Buddhists do this is with this figure Shishanaga, who I argue is the Egyptian Shishank, but they argue um, like he was a foundling, like Moses and Sargon. He was abandoned at birth. Again, this is a this is one of those archetypical motifs found around the ancient world. Even Lao Tzu in his Tao Te Ching has a line where he says, "Kings of old claim they were abandoned at birth." But also being common to the human mind, it also might be something that was borrowed also. And so, um, once again, I forgot originally what the question was. If there was one. Oh no, we're just speculating on some of the Gnostic insights and parallels and influences with Buddhism. Uh, and again, you bring so much. We talked about Basilides and some of the texts. Uh, I like, for example, you write in the the Sethian text uh, Zoroastrianos, which is named after, I believe, uh, yeah, Zarathustra's grandfather. And you talk about there appears a Buddha-like figure called Calyptos. Um, and you, th you relate to him to Buddha, who is time. And, uh, I mean, there's just a lot that you bring into it. Uh, very, very detailed. You, you get to the, the topsoil or the overview of the ideas of uh, Buddhism and Gnosticism. Uh, and you even talk about how Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostle, okay, well, we're going back to Luke, but Simon Magus was the alleged founder of Gnosticism. You even write how he's a sloppy covering for the Buddhist sources of Christianity. It, it appears to me so, Miguel, but uh, also weighing these other figures of the time, Simon Magus too, but these other figures put right in uh, Jeru Jerusalem before the temple fell, which is extraordinary. And they put this one figure named Terebinthus, they put him in uh, Jerusalem uh, with four quote unquote Indian books. One of them is called Evangelum, which is our word gospel, which is again, fascinating. When Max Mueller asked if there was a connection between Buddhism and Christianity, that he didn't think of this guy was amazing. And he was aware of this man named Terebinthus. Uh, who they also call Buddhas. Uh, yeah, tell us more about Terebinthus. Right, and so when people speak of Manny, a lot of times they're they're tying him back to Alexandria, but they're not uh, reading particularly what the early church fathers and people like Socrates, Scholastica, what they say about him is that he um, was persecuted, this figure Terebinthus. His, his teacher was named Scythianus, who left him some, he was a rich trader with India, a merchant from Siastan, 
and left him all these books. And Terebinthus went to Jerusalem and was trying to, to propagandize his faith there and was persecuted to Persia, where they say he was named as Buddhist. Now, it's interesting because the Persian name for the Terebinth tree is the Butum tree, B-U-T-M. And when Alexander the Great was taken to the tomb of Cyrus, he was asked to eat this sacred um, Terebinth tree. And so, again, right here, we have a connection. Uh, we have the name Budas. We have the connection to Cyrus. And it even tells a larger story because there are several traditions that speak of the Terebinth tree and Jesus and particularly his mother. And there's an incident where the tree bends down to aid the Jesus's mother, just like at the Buddha's birth, it was said that uh, Maya was aided by a tree. And you also see this motif in Islam too. Um, Muhammad, when he supposedly was in front of the Christian monk Bahira, a tree, the Christian monk supposedly witnessed this miracle where the tree bent down for Muhammad too. But anyway, the, the name of this tree in Persian is the Butum tree. And this character, Terebinthus, um, he could very well be the figure we know as Judas Iscariot, or not Iscariot, um, the Thudius, and it could be the Judas that are somewhat anachronistically presented in the, um, the New Testament. God, that's so much fascinating stuff. But it's a long drawn out theory and it's hard to present in you know, an audio form. Do you have a website or where can people find out more about you? I'm sure a lot of people have questions or would want to reach out to you after this. Well, um, geez, my Facebook page, it's usually I post articles from my uh, book that, you know, I uh, hopefully can draw some discussion. But um, just besides my books being out there on Amazon, I don't have any particular web page yet. Um, unless I feel the need to, of course I would, but my Facebook page, um, and geez, there's probably a million Daniel Hopkins out there, but, um, geez, you know, there might be one link to my Amazon book account. Um, not too sure, but uh, just give me your Facebook link and I'll put it in the show notes. That way people can just reach out to you directly. Wow. Sounds great. Thanks again, Miguel Vance. I'm so such a big fan of your show. Oh, well, thank you. We, well, we just tried to, uh, the truth is out there, as they say, and it's fun to speculate and, and see where it goes. At the end of the day, it's more of an inner journey for inner insights than anything, because people will be speculating on Buddha and Jesus for another thousand, two thousand years. Uh, <laughs> so, but the, this is, it's fun. So Vance, first of all, thanks for keeping us company. Always oh, fun, and you know what? Uh, you did a good. I'm a good job, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate both of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Daniel. Thank you very much, and good luck with your work. And really enjoyed your book. Thanks again, Miguel Vance. Appreciate it. Thank you. And there you have it, oh you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. Ain't Daniel's research spanning and intriguing? In our second part. We'll continue with the parallels between Gnosticism and Buddhism. Daniel will share where we can find Sophia in Buddhism, as well as Gnosis in Buddhism. We'll focus on the scenes in the Theraputae and their Eastern elements, and also the parallels of Buddha and Odin, and much more. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus for all subscribers, 
I'll include a clip where I provide the parallels of Gnosticism and esoteric Hinduism slash Buddhism. So please become an AB Prime member, Red Circle subscriber, or Patreon at Patreon for the full enlightenment. I won't go into all the shilling, but keep in mind that, through the holidays, you'll get a free PDF copy of 10 snackable meditations if you become an AB Prime member or mid-level Patreon at Patreon. You might need these meditations to get you through the holidays and the continued apocalypse in 2022. Trust me. Right now too, for an annual AB Prime membership, it's 20% off from the monthly one. Also keep in mind that joining the Finding Hermes program is now 40% off. So instead of 20 bucks a month, it's only $12.99. That will give you all the benefits of being an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon, but with access to our monthly Q&A and monthly Gnostic practices, rituals, and spirituality presentation. Doesn't get better than this, and it helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then place a five dollar wager on any sport you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.